To those of you watching online and welcome to Creekside, I guess I'll be watching this tomorrow morning, so welcome there. Let me just pray and then we'll begin. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a great prayer that covers almost every, it covers everything, lays all of life down before God. And I just needed to do that today. You know, it's wedding season. And uh, in August, I got to do a, a great wedding for uh, one of my Okanagan Sun players, he, he journeyed with us for five years. His name was Ben, and uh, just a great guy. Got to work with him and a few other guys to do a, a Bible study, some discipling stuff, both during the season and, and after the season. And, uh, and he came to me and said, would you, be, would you uh, do my wedding? And I said, I'd love to do your wedding. So I uh, did his wedding. It was great. And I went to the reception with my wife and, uh, and a few others and sat at the table and there was another son player at the table who's also now got too old to be the sons. He actually was, was at the BC Lions training camp and uh, was just this close to sort of getting on the Lions, but then they, uh, they let him go. So now next year he's going to be playing at UBC and still trying to keep his dream alive to maybe get into the CFL. But as I was chatting with him, I was talking, his name's Bobby, I was saying, so Bobby, what are you doing over the summer? He says, well, I got this good job. It's a union job, pays really well. He says, I load trucks at night. I said, oh, wow. I said, that's a coincidence. I used to load trucks when I was your age. I had a, a job on a, on a dock. I worked at St. George's Moving and Storage, and we used to do a lot of freight as well, and uh, it was really good. And actually, uh, those, guys, I mean, those guys were a, a big influence on my journey uh, in life and becoming a man and an understanding about God and everything. So he goes, oh, he says, today it's, it's different. I said, what do you mean it's different? He says, he says I get to work, and, I, and I, uh, I go into the office, and they give me like a little iPhone-type thing, and uh, I take that, and I plug these headphones into it, and I get out, and I got a, a pallet jack, electric pallet jack. You know what those are? It's like a little forklift. only goes about a foot high, but it basically you can stand on it, and it moves a pallet. He says, I get on my, my pallet jack, and I push order one. And in the headphones, it tells me, go down to row six. And I go down to row six, and then I turn, and, and it says, go down to whatever, spot 22. And I stop at spot 22, and then I scan my little thing, and it says, load six cases. So I stick those on the pallet. And he goes, the whole night is like that. Just when I finish order one, I put it on the truck, and then I click to order two. I said, wow. That sounds horrible. <laughs> he says, it is. It's really boring. He says, it pays well, but it's really boring. I don't talk to anybody. I said, it sounds like you're a robot, and the machine's running the show. I thought, and as I went home that night and laid in bed and thought about it, I thought, wow, how things have changed in 30 years. You know, that, that now to, if you work, I don't know if all places are like that, but some of these modern ones are. I guess they want to be efficient. They don't want to make mistakes, whatever. They've reduced it down to that, that you put headphones on and you just follow these instructions and around you go. What I want to, want to challenge us tonight with a little bit is to think that sometimes we reduce what God calls us to do down to something too small. If you read through the scriptures, it's this amazing deal that God calls us into. But sometimes we don't really grasp the big storyline that God has for us. We kind of think, well, you know, we start, well, everything's messed up, so we need, we need Jesus, we need redemption, but we don't set it in the big storyline 
of God's great storyline. So what I want to do today is, is read just a few verses from the beginning of the Bible and read a few verses from the very end of the Bible because we need the big storyline to really understand what God has called us into and how amazing and how beautiful and how wonderful it is to be able that he calls us to partake with him in this amazing redemption story of everything. So if you want to, uh, I think Lloyd's going to put it up there or someone will. There's a few verses from Genesis chapter 2. And I'm just going to read a couple of verses. There we are. This is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. The eternal planted a garden in the east of Eden, a place of utter delight. And he placed the man whom he had sculptured there. In this garden he made the ground pregnant with life, bursting forth with nourishing food and luxuriant beauty. He created trees, and in the center of this garden of delight stood the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, if you want to turn to the very end of the scriptures, if you have your Bible, to the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, I want to read verses 1 and 2. And the Apostle John writes this, My heavenly guide brought me to a river of pure living waters, simmering as brilliantly as crystal, and flowing out of the, it was flowing out of the throne of, the, of God and the throne of the Lamb, and flowing down the middle and dividing the street of the holy city. And on each bank of its river stood the tree of life, firmly planted, bearing 12 kinds of fruit and producing a sweet crop every month throughout the year. And the soothing leaves that grew on the, tr- grew on the tree of life provided precious healing for the nations. Do you see at the beginning of the scriptures and at the end of the scriptures we see this tree of life? Now I want you to imagine, first of all, we need to place ourselves back in Eden. It's a place of uh, utter perfection, utter delight, luxury, and, and beauty. It's just this amazing place. It says that Adam and Eve were, were both naked and they felt no shame. They were absolutely complete and whole. They were at peace with who, who they were as themselves, with God, with each other, and with creation. And as we journeyed, and that was all messed up. When they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, all of a sudden, their relationship was messed up with themselves, with God, with each other, and with creation. But at the very end of the scriptures, we see that this tree is there again, providing healing. And if you read the chapter before, in Revelation chapter 21, it says there'll be no more death, no more pain, no more struggle, no more disease. So what we see in the big picture is, at the beginning was this the most amazing, beautiful, awesome world that God created, that got messed up. But at the very end, we see it's not a garden, it's now a city. And it's full of people from every nation. And it's all beautiful and healed. And John is trying to put this to words. He talks about this amazing river that's like crystal. And he talks about the streets of gold and all that kind of stuff. He's just trying to get us to grasp how wonderful and perfect it is. And the issue we have to remind ourselves is that's God's big storyline. And we, we've landed in this world. We've landed in God's story. And because of what Jesus has done in dying on the cross, we now can connect and enter fully that story. But we're called to live it out, to journey in it. And that's kind of what I want to just talk a little bit about tonight, just to remind ourselves as we head into this fall. You see, the nation of Israel kind of failed to really um, do this. 
They didn't really live out God's storyline plan. After God had sort of formed them into a nation in Egypt, and then he rescued them through the Exodus, and they got off track very quickly, they didn't live out this amazing storyline that they were called to live. So what happened is, for God to sort of reshape them and get their attention, they became under the influence of another storyline, the Babylonians, and then by the time Jesus arrives, they're under what? The Roman storyline. And Jesus comes and he talks about this kingdom. He's talking about the restoration plan is happening now. But before, before Jesus even entered the picture, sort of in his public way of preaching, there's a character called John the Baptist. Do you ever wonder why John the Baptist is way out in the wilderness, way out on the very edge of Israel? That's where he's doing his message. Why isn't John at the temple? at the edge of the temple trying to get these Jewish peoples to, to straighten up and change their lives. Why isn't he there? Why is he out on the edge of the nation? Do you ever wonder that? Because when Jesus came, it wasn't just a restoration of the temple, it was a restoration of the culture, to step back into God's big storyline and be the people that are gonna work for restoration of everything. So John is back out on the edge of, on the edge of Israel as a nation, on the edge of the Jordan River. What is he doing? He's baptizing him in the Jordan, saying, re-enter the promised land. Start again fresh and be this, these people, this culture that God has called you to be. And that's the first thing I want to mention today. Understanding the big storyline that we are called to live and be a different culture, a culture of the king or the kingdom, as Jesus would say. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I prayed the Lord's Prayer. What does it pray? What does it say? Thy will be done on where? Earth as it is in heaven. God is calling us to be, to be involved in that now. We pray it, we live it, we move. Jesus will come and he'll say, follow me. My kingdom is at hand. My kingdom is within you. My kingdom is right there. When he preaches the, the, the amazing message about the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount, he's actually in like a city park somewhere. It's not just a church thing. It's for the people. He wants to expand it to show. Don't limit it just to church thing. It's the kingdom. It's big. It's awesome. And Jesus is challenged many times because the scribes and Pharisees had missed this. They were good on doctrine. They had studied the scriptures a lot. They could memorize scriptures. They knew all the laws. But what? I think they, one of the problems they had was they'd missed the big, giant storyline that they were to be as God's people. You know, if any of you here today think that being a Christian is boring and dull, then I think you've bought into, like my friend Bobby, headphone kind of Christianity where you just want to, God, go left, go right, go to aisle six. And you haven't taken those headphones off and seen that there's this big, giant storyline that God wants us to be involved in. I'm going to uh, use three men as examples today, and I'm not just because I'm not trying to be chauvinist, because I, but I really want to challenge, uh, I mean, ladies, you'll get this too, but I want to challenge men to step up and be cultural changers. I want to tell you about a guy, he lived a few hundred years ago, his name was George. And George was a, a bit of a character when he was young, but as he got older and uh, got into business and other things, he, um, he saw that his people were being treated badly, unfairly, unjustly. Taxes were being, were be, they were sort of under the control of a foreign nation. Taxes were getting real high. They had no say in what those taxes should be. 
So the people got together and they decided they were going to stop this. They were going to revolt. And who was going to sort of lead this army of, of ragtag people was this guy called George. And George was brave. It says in one battle alone, he had a bullet hole in his hat, bullet holes in his coat. Two horses were shot out from underneath him. I mean, this guy had courage. But it also said if you went to see George's tent in the morning, you would find George on his knees with his Bible open, praying, seeking God, trying to hear his voice. But George knew God was calling this sort of ragtag group of people to be a different nation under God. And George took a ragtag collection of underfed, underpaid, half-start men to defeat the most well-trained and uh, most resources sort of backed-up army in the world at that time. But when they won, the people said, you have to become our king. Even some of his advisors said, you need to unite us all together by becoming our king. And George knew that France had a king and England had a king. But George saw in the scriptures that God had a different, only had one king. And it was about his kingdom. And George said, no. I never fought for me to become a star, for me to be king. I fought for you as the people. I wanted a different, a different view of a nation. One nation under God. I'm talking about George Washington. And they didn't even know what to call it. We needed some kind of a leader to get this thing started. And this sort of presidency thing came up. And that's how we end up, the United States had this president. George Washington was the first president. But it took a man amount of sacrifices on George's part. And George, you know, I'm sure there was temptation to become the king of this new land. But he turned that down. Because he said, God's kingdom isn't that way. This culture that, that Jesus is all about and God is all about is not like that. And he turned it away. It's interesting when we read the Gospels, the very first thing we see happen to Jesus is he goes through the temptation in the wilderness. And he's tempted with all the glory and all the splendor and all the power and all the stuff that most times we think about kingdoms and cultures and who runs them. And Jesus turns that away. And then he begins his message, begins his sermon. He said, my kingdom is different. My kingdom is where people serve each other and care for each other. It's totally different. And in many ways, it's us as a church that's God's people who gather around Jesus are to be a foretaste of the kingdom to come. One of the things that uh, I'm sort of overseeing now is the Hope Center. And folks, I think we're just scratching the surface of what this could be. You, know, you have to come around the back of the building and come inside and you know, it's only open a, uh, three days a week. And, but I think that what, if, we really need to, if we want to have the vision to develop this, to be something that gives Rutland a foretaste of the kingdom. Where people are loved and cared for, where community is formed. I mean, mostly people come in here, they've had bashed up relationships. They don't even know how to function in relationships. A community garden started, but it could be a community kitchen and baking classes and community table lunches where they come together every day. There's a lunch provided and we do a little devotion and we pray and give thanks and we eat together at a table to become community. I mean, there's so much potential for this. And doesn't Rutland need to see a foretaste of a different culture? I believe it does. I believe it does. But we need volunteers. I mean, I know the summertime is tough. We, we had to close a few days, didn't have enough volunteers. 
We need, you know, folks, if you want to gather together and make some lunches, that would be awesome. Soup in the wintertime. I think we're just scratching the surface with the baby basket and, and some of the other stuff, but I think it could be so amazing. Wouldn't it be amazing that people said, wow, there's something about that on Highway 33. There's, there's uh, what is it? What's that village up here called? Shoppersville? No, what's it called? Shoppers Village? Anybody know? Huh? Village? I don't know what it's called. Anyway, something. But wouldn't it be neat that this, they just understood that this is a, somehow, this is a foretaste of this amazing kingdom, this amazing culture. And God calls us to that, to be that with our families, with our church family, and bigger in our culture, in our culture. That's what Jesus was talking about, what John the Baptist was talking about. Change your life, repent. The king is here and his kingdom is at hand. So in the big storyline we see that God always wanted a nation to show the world his culture. Now he calls the church as his nation to show the world his culture, his kingdom, to be a foretaste of where we're going. Thy will be done now. That's what we're supposed to be working at and being involved with. That's an awesome task to get involved in. George Washington saw that. Hopefully we can see that as well. But the, the main resource of this storyline is disciples. It's not money it's not buildings, it's disciples. It's disciples. Jesus said very clearly, come follow me, I'll make you a fisher of men. I'll make you a disciple, you're going to disciple others. His last words to us, his charge, were go and make disciples. Someone has said, if we focus on making disciples, we'll get a strong church. If we focus on just trying to get a church, we may not get very good disciples. Folks, we've got to get back to making disciples. It's how this culture is formed. It's how it moves forward. Let me, uh, let me tell you something that's going to hurt. Do you know that over 90% of small groups never make a disciple? Never make a disciple. Jesus calls us to make disciples. What is the mark of a disciple? That I, ha- I go to church and I attend church regularly? that I've prayed a prayer? Is that the mark of a disciple? The mark of a disciple is that you make other disciples. And discipleship isn't weird. Discipleship is the journey to becoming fully who God intended you to be. Discipleship is the journey to becoming fully human. If God created you and I to live in his plan, to live in rhythm, to become like his son, which the scriptures call us to do, then it is a journey to becoming fully human, fully alive, fully who God intended us to be and every person on this planet. To be people who live out that life that is a foretaste of the kingdom to come. That culture is experienced now in how we live our lives and what we do, what we're passionate about. We need to be people who are not just learning a lot of doctrine, this week someone stopped me and they were beefing about their church and, and, and you know, the pers- this person had been to Bible college, they'd been sitting in church for 40 years and they were talking about how they just need better doctrinal teaching. I thought, buddy, I want to beam you up and drop you in some place where there are no Christians. You need to start making other disciples. Quit being all about you getting fed. I was kind. I'm a wimp. I didn't say that, but anyway... I'm strange. 
But you know what? Being a disciple is the most wonderful thing we can all be. It is awesome. It's what truly does give us life, but it's hard. It's hard. To remind myself, I've tattooed my life verse on my arm, which is all about that. 1 John 2, 6, which says, if I say I live in intimacy with Jesus, I should walk the path he walked. If I say I know him, I need to live like Jesus. I need to be a disciple. It's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's amazing, but it's hard. It's hard. Second man, I want to give you an example of a man who took this seriously was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived during the Second World War, who was one of the first people as a, as a theologian, as a church leader, to see that Hitler was bad and to begin to warn people about this man. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. It um, challenge about cheap grace. You know, we're, we're coming to this table later on today to receive grace, and we all need grace. We don't come to this table because it's a reward for being good. We come to this table because we need God's forgiveness and God's love. We come for grace that we haven't earned, we don't deserve. We come to partake it and remember that it's grace. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, we produce it down to cheap grace. We come and we partake of that, but we have nothing in us, no passion to be a disciple. He goes, something's desperately wrong there. He says, if one was unprepared to live out what one claimed to believe, perhaps one didn't believe what one claimed after all. He was a radical man. He started in the, or was, became the head of an illegal seminary. Back in Germany, he taught his students to maintain a robust devotional life, praying and studying and meditating on the scriptures daily. He said a Christian community is one that takes the Sermon on the Mount seriously. Takes the Sermon on the Mount and says, we're going to live that as people. We're going to do that at least best, best we can. That's what, this is not just some great words Jesus said. He wants us to live that. That's why at the end Jesus says, if you take these words and just chat about them in Bible studies and don't live them, you're like a stupid man who builds his house on what? Sand. But if you take these words and you live them as a community and as people, the craziest storms will come and they can't wash you away. They can't. But he expects us to step up and give it a go. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, when Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids them to come die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you know, was, saw how wrong Hitler was, was in a, a group of people that decided they were going to try to take Hitler out. He was uncovered, and uh, he uh, was imprisoned, and a couple of weeks before the Second World War ended, he was hung. But he lived. He lived. He wrote that uh, as he was, knew that death was, he was soon going to be executed and hung, he wrote, death is the last station on the road to freedom. I like that. Death, sometimes you and I are terrified of death. We don't like death. We fight it. We, take, we do all kinds of things. We complain about it. But Dietrich Bachmann says, I'm on this journey to freedom. And the last train station that train stops at is death. And then I'm free. Disciples are the main resource of God's storyline. And the mark of a disciple is we make other disciples. Let me, let me prod you a bit today. 
Have you made other disciples? Have you? There's so many people around just need somebody to care for them, love them, begin to journey with them, hear their story, hear their heart. Jesus calls us to do that. So the, the, in God's main storyline, it's about a new culture, a new kingdom. The main resource of, his, of this storyline is disciples. And the main virtue is love. 1 Corinthians 13, we always read at weddings. I just come through wedding season, as I mentioned earlier. But this 1 Corinthians 13 is not given to couples getting married. It is what Paul is writing to the church, to these believers that are living out and supposed to be a foretaste of the kingdom. He's saying, man, it's all about love. I don't care how much doctrine you know. I don't care how many studies you go to or how much you go to church. If you don't love, you're just probably annoying. He said you're like a clanging cymbal. We were just camping this week and they were doing construction behind us. That was annoying. Paul says it's worse than that. Let me read this. If I speak with the most elegant languages of people or in exotic languages of heavenly messengers but live without love, well then, anything I say is like a clanging of brass or a crashing cymbal. And if I have the gifts of prophecy and blessed with knowledge and insight into all mysteries... Or what if I have faith strong to scoop a mountain from its bedrock, yet I live without love? If so, I am nothing. If I give all I have to feed the poor, if I could surrender my body to be burned as a martyr, but if I do not have love, I'm gaining nothing by my selfless acts. As one translation says, I'm bankrupt without love. I'm spiritually bankrupt without love. Love is patient, love is kind, it, does, it isn't envious, doesn't boast, brag, or strut about. There's no arrogance in love. It is never rude or crude or indecent. It is not self-absorbed. Love isn't easily upset. Doesn't, doesn't tally wrongs or celebrate injustice, but truth, yes, truth, is love's delight. Love puts up with anything and everything that comes along. It always trusts, hopes, and endures no matter what. Love will never become obsolete. Now as if, now, for the gift Sorry, now for prophetic gifts, they will not last. Unknown languages will become silent, and the gift of knowledge will no longer be needed. The gift of knowledge and prophecy are partial at best, at least for now. But when the perfection and fullness of God's kingdom arrives, all parts will end. When I was a child, I spoke, as it, I spoke thought, and reasoned in a childlike ways, as, I, as we all do now. But when I became a man, I left childish ways behind. For now, we can only see dim and a blurry picture of things as we stare into polished metal. I realize that everything I know is only part of the big picture. But one day, when Jesus arrives, we will see clearly face to face, and then that day I will fully know that I have been, as I have known, as I have been wholly known by God. Man. But now, faith, hope, and love remain, and these three virtues must be characterized in our lives the greatest of these is love. You could say love and peace and all that wholeness was, was at the garden at the very beginning, got messed up, and at the very end we see that picture again, the tree of life, and that's going to be back there. Paul, or Paul writes here and says when it's the end, there's all these other great, amazing spiritual gifts that can, people can have 
are awesome, but at the end, they won't, they won't be needed in the end. But love will be. We are called to be people who love each other deeply and to love others, this world. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says they'll know you as a people who are foretaste of the kingdom by what? By love. I want to tell you about one more man. Talked about George um, Washington. I've talked about uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Another man who who understood that this culture needs to be different, that Jesus calls us to a different culture, calls us to radical discipleship, and he calls us to love. His name was William Wilberforce. He's known probably as the anti-slavery politician. Was born in 1759 and died in 1833. He was a small man. You can go see his jacket. I guess they have it in Great Britain somewhere. It's only a 36-inch chest. So he's a little guy. He had poor health that plagued him most of his life, but he was a powerhouse when it became understanding God's storyline and the culture of Jesus the King and discipleship and love. During William's time, uh, to be an educated, uh, part, he was a guy that was in England, he was, he was in politics, and to be one of those kind of sophisticated sort of upper class people and be a serious Christian was considered silly. Christianity was for, the, for those who were poor and those who were uneducated but he was a serious Christian. It was very difficult for him back then. Politics were very dirty. Uh, was a culture was crazy. As you looked out around London where he lived, 25% of all single women in London at that time were prostitutes. You can imagine the kind of culture that flourished there. The, the drinking, it was just a very... But William was driven by love. To end the slave trade, which we know him, to, he did. He fought it all his life. And he finally got that bill through Parliament to stop, to stop slave trade, and he died three days later. It took him all his life to fight for that because he knew in God's culture and God's kingdom, people aren't bought and sold. People aren't treated like slaves. William wrote a book on discipleship, became a bestseller. It was a scathing critique of comfortable Christianity of the day. But William set out to change culture. He said, I want to make goodness fashionable. He looked out at all these different problems in our culture and he's, in his culture and said, I can do something. I can at least try. As a, as a person who had some money, he called other people who had money to give to the poor, which wasn't heard of back then. It was almost like in Jesus' days. If you were rich, then well, you had God's blessing. If you were poor, well, you just weren't under God's favor. But William said, no, no, no. I look at the scriptures, look at God's culture, and says, if we have, if we have lots, we're to share with those that don't have, don't have much. That's how the culture of God works. He gave at least one quarter of his annual income to the poor. He fought in Parliament to, have, to see bills changed for chimney sweeps, for single moms, for schools, for orphans, for juvenile delinquents, for the better treatment of animals. The list goes on and on. There were 69, 69 causes that William was able to get through and change. He, he started with others, a whole bunch of parachurch organizations, the Society for Bettering the Poor, the Church Missionary Society, the British and Foreign Bible Society. William knew, William knew that God's kingdom storyline worked not only in the church, but in the culture, and he fought for that. William understood that to be a disciple was the main resource God had 
in developing his storyline. William understood that love was key. He loved these people. Not only did William sort of, he didn't just go to church. William was part of something called the Chapel, Chapel Ham Circle or Chapham Saints. That was another man who, who saw that Christians really need to deeply love each other. So in London, he ended up buying a house and in a few houses it was close to Westminster Abbey and also close to the Parliament Building where these people would live there sometimes when they were in London doing their work. Together as a community, deeply loving each other, praying for each other, praying for the culture. William was no lone ranger. Folks, I mentioned three people. We need women, but I really think we need men to step up today. They're saying that in our culture, our church culture today, we are losing 70 to 90% of our young men. I don't know if that's true or not. Read it this week. But boy, I think sometimes if they think that they've missed the end of the, or the, the beginning and the end of the scriptures, this huge storyline that we're in, and they think it's all about some kind of headphone thing, they're missing it. And yeah, they're leaving. We've got to guys in the big, the big cultural storyline that Jesus has called us into. I mentioned uh, three men out of this book. I'm with uh, four other men. We're going through this book and we're challenging each other. What does it mean to be a person today who's called to really be a person who understands that God wants to set the culture, wants to change the culture, wants to lead the culture, to give you a foretaste of the kingdom, that wants us to be full-out crazy disciples and wants us to be men who can love, love in the real way. Anybody can guess who else is in this book? I'll give you this copy. It's called Seven Men and the Secret to Their Greatness. George Washington's in here. William Wilberforce is in here. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's in here. There's four more. Anybody any guesses? Come on. Charles, pardon? No. Most of them aren't church people. God, no. Um, no. So most of them, actually only a couple of them are church people. The rest of them are either from sports or from politics or from some other place in the culture where they actually out there lived in an amazing way, try and change things away. Pardon? No, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm just going to give it away. This man right here. Here you go, right there. You. The, shirt, the striped shirt. You can have it. Yes, behind Amanda. Can I throw it to you? So. But here's my challenge. You know what? I don't want anybody to leave here feeling guilted. I just wanted to say, you know what, men? Get a couple of other men. Get a copy of like that book and start reading through it and challenging each other to say, man, this is, this is great stuff. Don't sell yourself short by reducing down what God has called us to do to just going to church and then zipping off to your job. Don't do that. Don't do that. Get a couple of the guys together read a book like that, challenge each other. What does it mean for us to reshape our culture today the way the king wants us to do it? It'll take sacrifices. All these stories in that book, are, it costs sacrifices. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, it cost him his life. George Washington made a huge sacrifice by, also, by fighting in a very dangerous time, but also then turning down at being a king. 
That's a sacrifice. He said no to that. For what? For the greater king. William Wilberforce, he was mocked, he was ridiculed. It was a tough go for him. He was sick a lot of his life, but he fought for all these causes. Our world is different today because of men like him. Fifty years ago, this week, there was a famous speech by a man. Did you guys remember who that was? Martin Luther King. He stood up. I have a dream. And when he unpacked what he was saying, what was he talking about? The kingdom we see in this book. It's a beautiful dream. We see at the beginning, it was amazing. And we see at the end, again, it's going to be amazing. But it doesn't mean we just sit on our hands until that time. We are called as men and women that that's supposed to start happening now. We are God's change agents. As we head into this fall, head into the school year, just start praying. God will open up. It won't be easy. It'll be challenging. But God has a place for each of us to be a little salt and light, as Jesus will say to be God's flavor and God's color in this world so that they can see the king and see the kingdom. All of us, all of us. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this amazing challenge. Thank you for the very beginning of your word where we see it was perfect. It was whole and it was complete and it was luxurious and just awesome and thank you that at the very end of the story we see there's going to be no more pain and no more death and no more hurt and no more tears thank you lord but lord i pray that you'd empower and you would challenge us today to step into the place you are calling us to make a difference this world needs to see a new culture This world needs to see disciples, people that are living fully who they are intended to be. And people in this world need to see true love, love that will make sacrifices, love that will stand up against things that were wrong, and love that will have courage to make a difference. So Lord, I pray for the men and women in this place. I pray for myself. It's not easy, but it's awesome. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.